This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Robert Scott. Miscellaneous Essays by Thomas de Quincey. Dinner, Real and Reputed, Part 3. The first introduction of this military meal into Rome itself would be through the honorable pedantry of old centurions and company, delighting, note like the Trunnions and company of our navy, to keep up in peaceful life some image or memorial of their past experience, so wild, so full of peril, excitement, and romance, as Roman warfare must have been in those ages. Many non-military people, for health's sake, many as an excuse for eating early, many by way of interposing some refreshment between the stages of forensic business, would adopt this hurried and informal meal. Many would wish to see their sons adopting such a meal as a training for foreign service in particular, and for temperance in general. It would also be maintained by a solemn and very interesting commemoration of this camp repast in Rome. This commemoration, because it has been grossly misunderstood by Salmasius, note, whose error arose from not making the true point of a particular antithesis, and still more, because it is a distinct confirmation of all we have said as to the military nature of Prandium. We shall detach from the series of our illustrations by placing it in a separate paragraph. On a set day, the officers of the army were invited by Caesar to a banquet. It was a circumstance expressly noticed in the invitation by the proper officers of the palace that this banquet was not a, quote, coena, but a, quote, prandium. What followed in consequence? Why that all the guests sate down in full military accoutrement, whereas, observes the historian, had it been a coena, the officers would have unbelted their swords, for he adds, even in Caesar's presence, the officers lay aside their words. The word, prandium, in short, converted the palace into the imperial tent, and Caesar was no longer a civil emperor and princeps senatus, but became a commander-in-chief amongst a council of his staff, all belted and plumed and in full military figure. On this principle we come to understand why it is that whenever the Latin poets speak of an army as taking food, the word used is always prandens and prancis. And when the word used is prandens, then always it is an army that is concerned. Thus Juvenal, in a well-known satire, quote, Credimus altos desicaces amnes epotaque ftumina medo prandente, end quote. 
not coenate. Observe, you might as well talk of an army taking tea and toast, nor is that word ever applied to armies. It is true that the converse is not so rigorously observed, nor ought it from the explanations already given. Though no soldier dined, note, coenabat, yet the citizens sometimes adopted the camp usage and took a prandium. But generally the poets use the word merely to mark the time of day. In that most humorous appeal of Perseus, quote, cure quis non prandiat hoc est, end quote. Quote, is this a sufficient reason for losing one's prandium? He was obliged to say prandium because no exhibitions ever could cause a man to lose his coenia, since none were displayed at a time of day when anybody in Rome would have attended. Just as in alluding to a parliamentary speech notoriously delivered at midnight, an English satirist must have said, Is this a speech to furnish an argument for leaving one's bed? Not as what stood foremost in his regard, but as the only thing that could be lost at that time of night. On this principle also, viz., by going back to the military origin of prandium, we gain the interpretation of all the peculiarities attached to it, viz. 1. Its early hour. 2. Its being taken in a standing posture. 3. In the open air. 4. The humble quality of its materials, bread and biscuit. Note, the main articles of military fare. In all these circumstances of the meal, we read, most legibly written, the exotic and military character of the meal. Thus we have brought down our Roman friend to noonday, or even one hour later than noon, and to this moment the poor man has had nothing to eat, for supposing him to be not imprancis, and supposing him gentase, beside Yet in the evident, note, we hope, that neither one nor the other means more than what it is often called, viz. Note, Greek, buchismos, or, in plain English, a mouthful. How long do we intend to keep him waiting? Reader, he will dine at three. Or, note, supposing dinner put off to the latest hour, at four. Dinner was never known to be later than the tenth hour in Rome, which in summer would be past five, but for a far greater proportion of days would be near four in Rome, except for one or two of the emperors, whom the mere business attached to their unhappy station kept sometimes dinnerless till six. As so entirely was a Roman, the creature of ceremony, that a national mourning would probably have been celebrated and the, quote, sad augurs, end quote, would have been called in to expiate the prodigy, had the general dinner lingered beyond four. But meantime, 
What has our friend been about since perhaps six or seven in the morning? After paying his little homage to his patronus, in what way has he fought with the great enemy time since then? Why, reader, this illustrates one of the most interesting features in the Roman character. The Roman was the idolist of men. Quote, man and boy, end quote. He was, quote, an idler in the land, end quote. He called himself and his pals, quote, rerum dominos gentemque togatum, end quote. The gentry that wore the toga. Yes, a pretty affair that, quote, toga was. Just figure to yourself, reader, the picture of a hard-working man with horny hands like our hedgers, ditchers, weavers, potters, and company, setting to work in the high road in that vast sweeping toga, filling with a strong gale like the mainsail of a frigate. Conceive the roars with which this magnificent figure would be received into the bosom of a poor-house detachment sent out to attack the stones on some new line of road, or a fatigue party of dustmen set upon secret service. Had there been nothing left as a memorial of the Romans, but that one relic, their immeasurable toga, footnote to follow, we should have known that they were born and bred to idleness. Footnote, immeasurable toga. Quote, it is very true that in the time of Augustus the toga had disappeared amongst the lowest plebes, and greatly Augustus was shocked at that spectacle. It is a very curious fact in itself, especially as expounding the main cause of the civil wars. Mere poverty and the absence of bribery from Rome whilst all popular competition for offices drooped can alone explain this remarkable revolution of dress. End footnote. In fact, except in war, the Roman never did anything at all but sun himself. Ut se apricaret was the final cause of peace in his opinion, in literal truth that he might make an apricot of himself. The public rations at all times supported the poorest inhabitants of Rome if he were a citizen. Hence it was that Hadrian was so astonished with the spectacle of Alexandria. Quote, Civitas opulenta fecunda in qua nemo vivat atiosus. End quote. Here first he saw the spectacle of a vast city, second only to Rome, where every man had something to do. Padagrosi quad agnat habent habent sisi quad fascinat ne chiragrici. Note, those with gout in the fingers. Quote, apud eos otiosi vivant. End quote. No poor rates levied upon the rest of the world for the benefit of their own paupers were there distributed. Gratis. The prodigious spectacle, note, 
so it seemed to Hadrian, was exhibited in Alexandria, of all men earning their bread in the sweat of their brow. In Rome only, note, and at one time in some of the Grecian states, it was the very meaning of citizen that he could vote and be idle. In these circumstances, where the whole sum of life's duties amounted to voting, all the business a man could have was to attend the public assemblies, electioneering, or factios. These and any judicial trial, note public or private, that might happen to interest him for the person concerned, or for the question, amused him through the morning. That is, from eight till one, he might also extract some diversion from the columnae, or pillars of certain porticos to which they pasted advertisements. These affiches might have been numerous for all the girls in Rome who lost a trinket or a pet bird or a lapdog took this mode of angling in the great ocean of the public for the missing article. But all this time we take for granted that there were no shows in a course of exhibition, either the dreadful ones of the amphitheater or the bloodless ones of the circus. If there were, then that became the business of all Romans, and it was a business which would have occupied him from daylight until the light began to fall. Here we see another effect from the scarcity of artificial light amongst the ancients. These magnificent shows went on by daylight, but how incomparably greater would have been the splendor by lamplight. What a gigantic conception! Eighty thousand human faces, all revealed under one blaze of lamplight. Lord Bacon saw the mighty advantage of candlelight for the pomps and glories of this world. But the poverty of the earth was the ultimate cause that the pagan shows proceeded by day. Not that the masters of the world who rained Arabian odors and perfumed waters of the most costly description from a thousand fountains, simply to cool the summer heats, would have regarded the expense of light, cedar, and other odorous woods burning upon vast altars, together with every variety of fragrant torch, would have created light enough to shed a new day over the distant Adriatic. However, as there are no public spectacles, we will suppose, and the courts or political meetings, note, if not closed altogether by superstition, would at any rate be closed in the ordinary course by twelve or one o'clock. Nothing remains for him to do, before returning home, except perhaps to attend the palestra, or some public recitation of a poem written by a friend, but in any case to attend the public baths. For these the time varied, and many people have thought it tyrannical in some of the Caesars that they imposed restraints on the time open for the baths. Some, for instance, would not suffer them to open at all before two, 
and in any case, if you were later than four or five in summer, you would have to pay a fine which most effectually cleaned out the baths of all riffraff, since it was a sum that John Queries could not have produced to save his life. But it should be considered that the emperor was the steward of the public resources for maintaining the baths in fuel, oil, attendance, repairs. We are prepared to show, on a fitting occasion, that every fourth person, footnote to follow, amongst the citizens bathed daily, and non-citizens, of course, paid an extra sum. Footnote, that boys in the Pratexta did not bathe in the public baths is certain, and most unquestionably that is the meaning of the expression in juvenile so much disputed. Quote, Nisi quae nandum aver laventure. By ace he means the ahenum, common name for the public bath, which was made of copper. In our navy, quote, the coppers is a name for the boilers. Quote, nobody believes in such tales except children, end quote, is the meaning. This one exclusion cut off three-eighths of Roman males. End footnote. Now, the population of Rome was far larger than has ever been hinted at except by Lipsius. But, certain it is, that during the long peace of the first Caesars, and after the Ananaria Proricio, note that great pledge of popularity to a Roman prince, had been increased by the corn tribute from the Nile, the Roman population took an immense lurch ahead. The subsequent increase of baths, whilst no old ones were neglected, proves that decisively. And as citizenship expanded by means of the easy terms on which it could be had, so did the bathers multiply. The population of Rome in the century after Augustus was far greater than during that era, and this, still acting as a vortex to the rest of the world, may have been one great motive with Constantine for, quote, transferring the capital eastwards. In reality, for breaking up one monster capital into two of more manageable dimensions. Two o'clock was often the earliest hour at which the public baths were opened. But in Marshall's time, a man could go without blushing, note, salva fronte, at eleven, though even then two o'clock was the meridian hour for the great uproar of splashing and swimming and, quote, larking, in the endless baths of endless Rome. And now, at last, bathing finished, and the exercise of the palestra, and half-past two or three, our friend finds his way home, not again to leave it for that day. He is now a new man, refreshed, oiled with perfumes, his dust washed off by hot water, and ready for enjoyment. These were the things that determined the time for dinner. Had there been no other proof that Coena was the Roman dinner, 
This is an ample one. Now first the Roman was fit for dinner, in a condition of luxurious ease. Business ever, that day's load of anxiety, laid aside. His cuticle, as he delighted to talk. Cleansed and polished, nothing more to do or think of, until the next morning he might now go and dine, and get drunk with a safe conscience. Besides, if he does not get dinner now, when will he get it? For, most demonstrably, he has taken nothing yet, which comes near in value to that basin of soup, which many of ourselves take at the Roman hour of bathing. No, we have kept our man fasting as yet. It is to be hoped that something is coming at last. It does come. Dinner, the great meal of, quote, Coena, the meal sacred to hospitality and genial pleasure, comes now to fill up the rest of the day, until light falls altogether. Many people are of the opinion that the Romans only understood what the capabilities of dinner were. It is certain that they were the first great people that discovered the true secret and meaning of dinner, the great office which it fulfills, and which we in England are now so generally acting on. Barbarous nations, and none were, in that respect, more barbarous than our own ancestors, made this capital blunder. The brutes, if you ask them what was for dinner, what it was meant for, stared at you and replied, as a horse would reply, if you put the question about his provender, that it was to give him strength for finishing his work. Therefore, if you point your telescope back to antiquity, about twelve or one o'clock in the daytime, you will descry our most worthy ancestors all eating for their very lives, eating as dogs eat, viz., in bodily fear that some other dog will come and take away their dinner. What swelling of the veins in the temples! Note, see Boswell's Natural History of Dr. Johnson at dinner. What intense and rapid deglutition! What odious clatter of knives and plates! What silence of human voice! What gravity! What fury in the libidinous eyes with which they contemplate the dishes! Positively, it was an indecent spectacle to see Dr. Johnson at dinner. But, above all, what maniacal haste and hurry, as if the fiend were waiting with red-hot pinchers to lay hold of the hindermost. O oh, reader, do you recognize in this abominable picture your respected ancestors and ours? Excuse us for saying, quote, what monsters? We have a right to call our own ancestors monsters, and if so, we must have the same right over yours. For, Dr. Sothi has shown plainly in the, quote, doctor, that every one having four grandparents in the second stage of ascent, note, each of whom having four, therefore, sixteen in the third, and so on, long before you get to the conquest, 
every man and woman then living in England will be wanted to make up the sum of my separate ancestors. Consequently, you must take your ancestors out of the very same fund, or, note, if you are too proud for that, you must go without ancestors. So that your ancestors being clearly mine, I have a right in law to call the whole kit of them monsters. Quad erat demonstrandum. Really, and upon our honor, it makes one, for the moment, ashamed of one's descent. One would wish to disinherit oneself backward. And, note, as Sheridan says in The Rivals, to, quote, cut the connection, end quote. Wordsworth has an admirable picture in Peter Bell of, quote, a snug party in a parlor, end quote, removed into limbus patrum for their offenses in the flesh. Quote, cramming, as they on earth were crammed, all sipping wine, all sipping tea, but as you by their faces see, all silent and all dd. How well does that one word describe these venerable ancestral diners, quote, all silent. Contrast this infernal silence of voice and fury of eye with the, quote, rhesus amabilis, end quote, the festivity, the social kindness, the music, the wine, the, quote, dulcius insania, end quote, of a Roman, quote, coena. We mentioned four tests for determining what meal is and what is not dinner. We may now add a fifth, viz., the spirit of festal joy and elegant enjoyment, of anxiety laid aside, and of honorable social pleasure put on like a marriage garment. And what caused the difference between our ancestors and the Romans? Simply this, the error of interposing dinner in the middle of business, thus courting all the breezes of angry feeling that may happen to blow from the business yet to come. Instead of finishing, absolutely closing, the account with the world's troubles before you sit down, that unhappy interpolation ruined all. Dinner was an ugly little parenthesis between two still uglier clauses of a teetotally ugly sentence. Whereas with us, their enlightened posterity, to whom they have the honor to be ancestors, dinner is a great reaction. There lies our conception of the matter. It grew out of the very excess of the evil. When business was moderate, dinner was allowed to divide and bisect it. When it swelled into the vast strife and agony, as thee may call it, that boils along the tortured streets of modern London or other capitals, men began to see the necessity of an adequate counterforce to push against this overwhelming torrent, and thus maintain the equilibrium. Were it not for the soft relief of a six o'clock dinner, the gentle manner succeeding to the boisterous hubbub of the day, the soft glowing lights, the wine, 
the intellectual conversation. Life in London is now come to such a pass that in two years all nerves would sink before it. But for this periodic reaction, the modern business which draws so cruelly on the brain and so little on the hands would overthrow that organ in all but those of coarse organization. Dinner it is, meaning by dinner the whole complexity of attendant circumstances, which saves the modern brain-working men from going mad. End of section 16, Dinner, Real and Reputed, Part 3, by Thomas de Quincey. Recorded by Robert Scott, June the 30th, 2007.